We're going to start this morning actually a little bit different. Like Lex said, we're going to have our Q&A Sunday where we have taken in questions that you have provided us to answer. Um, these are questions that might have been uh, stirred around the dinner tables, whether it be political, cultural, or just theological questions. We got some great questions from you all. So Roy and I have those set up, and uh, we would love to dive right into that. And uh, Roy will kick us off. Yes, morning, y'all. Can everyone hear me? Let's move this over, okay? Morning. Everyone alive out there? Great. If you're not, you will be soon because we're going through some cultural questions, theological questions, political questions, all that are sourced from you. They didn't come from us. We asked y'all, what are you asking around your dinner table? And so we have about five questions that we discerned, hey, we should probably end up talking about these things. So the heart behind this, friends, from church leadership is not to divide the church over polarizing issues that are societal. It's actually to equip the born-again saints in here to actually understand what is truth from a lie. You catching me there? And so what we're asking you as we come through here, and we're going to answer with some biblical supported questions, uh, answers, we're asking you to not just receive, but to pray into and discern. So we know that there needs to be unity in the body of Christ, and we celebrate diversity in everything. But God holds highly that there's one truth, no diversity in it, but unity in the gospel of Christ. Amen? So with all of that said, our heart towards you is love. Your heart towards us is love. And with that established, can we start this bad boy? Okay, let's do it. So the first question that we're going to answer is, what do you think is the body of Christ's role in fighting the politics that go against the church and the word of God? That's a hot one to start off with. So the role of government is outlined in Romans 12. And the role of government is to restrain evil. Okay, this is no exaggeration, but we would say probably in U.S. history for the past 50 years, it's gone into ethical, government has gone into ethical and moral issues more than just restraining evil. And so strictly in the past 10 years, we've seen things that were that have been antithetical to biblical truth, such as same-sex marriage end up becoming lawful in 2014. And now we're starting to see other forms that are not found in the Bible of different lifestyles that are being celebrated by the government. So in other words, what I'm saying is, if you think that the saying, don't talk about politics and don't talk about religion is still relevant today, it's not. <laughs> because everything becomes politicized, every issue. And so we want to equip y'all just with what that looks like in terms of we are saying biblically it's incumbent on the Christian to be not just aware of the politics that contradict biblical worldview, but also incumbent on the people of God, meaning the church, to actually stand up and speak out about, against evil policy. So let's go to the Bible first. We're going to work through one passage, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. Get out your Bible apps. Um, the best way that you could get the word of God into you quickly, we don't have any slides here today. We want you to see it in front of you. <laughs> so if you got your physical Bible, pull that out. If you need one, you can raise your hand. And uh, we have Greg, if you wouldn't mind, if you see any hands raised, we can hand out Bibles. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Okay, let's read it. Apostle Paul's writing to the Corn Church and he says, We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down what? Strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. In other words, friends, the passage in Paul's exhortation is encouraging us to, to take the thoughts and ideas that we hear, whether it be from the culture, from family, so on and so forth, and pass them through a biblical grid. Is this biblical? Does this honor God? Is it a part of his creation? So that's what he's encouraging every born-again person to do, is to test and discern everything that goes on with every issue. So with that being understood, here's some just encouragements. We need to know what is truth and what is lies when it comes to politics because we're 
we're saying from here that it's our responsibilities to not just know, but when evil is actually being promoted from government to speak against. Number one, study your Bible. Study the word of God. Don't just come to us. We have these Q&As. This is our first shot at it. And if you would imagine only getting your resource for truth on um, political issues, theological, theological issues, so on and so forth, you just won't be as strong and you won't have that much of a godly awareness if your resource is anything other than the scriptures first. That shapes truth. And so to know policies is to get into the word of God. Secondly, is to speak out with grace and truth. Speak out with grace and truth. Biblically speaking, the prophets in the old covenant scriptures, they spoke against poli political leaders, called them out, and spoke against politics that were ungodly. The new covenant example is John the baptizer, and he confronts ki uh, King Herod. He confronts King Herod. So there's another example here. And here is a uh, quote from Charles Finney, a preacher from the 19th century. He says this, if there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discernment, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, which is happening right now, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls and legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that every foundation of government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Friends, we're not just asking you to be responsible, responsible for being aware of evil, but also ourselves. So what we've seen, this is, okay, now I'm getting into a personal opinion here, is 2020 ended up hitting, and what we saw was the scrambling of the church and their leadership to find answers. And without being studied, when 2020 hit on certain ethical and moral and ethnic issues, without being studied, a lot of church leadership just fall, fell into what culture was saying. Because for the most part, when it comes to CRT, no one wants to be prejudiced. No one in this room dares to do so. So it was just simple on a surface level, you just fall into it. Well, friends, without being proactive, that was a result of, of being reactive. Without being proactive, dare I say, possibly, and I could be wrong on this, that the church's leadership for the past, how many of years you wanna fill in, is a part of culture's response and their disinterest of the church. So we're trying to be proactive here and say the, the word of God is relevant to your lives and to everything that you care about, whether it be raising your children, whether it be politics that you watch on your screen. He has a big heart for everything because in politics and every policy, we're firm believers that it is an ethical, moral issue for everything. It's just a matter of how much it is, but God cares about it all. Okay, last thing is just pray. To be honest, I'm sure since 2020, a lot of us fell into a hard heart towards politics, towards the government, towards our brothers and sisters and, and siblings in Christ who had varying opinions on this. Pray for wisdom. Pray that God would guard your heart as you would enter into these things and as you would study and, God, and, and ask God to influence change, influence change in a godly way. God's not obligated to bless our ask of something that is evil and he won't do it but he cares so much for our dependency on him through it, especially as we enter into, for the most part, the pre, well, I won't go that far, sorry, KJ. Um, ask for wisdom for discernment on what platforms to use, on what to say and what not to say. Um, just a basic rule for me personally is if I'm not gonna say it to someone's face first, then I probably won't post it. <laughs> and I don't wanna hit people out of nowhere to where they end up saying, oh, now he cares about this. I'd rather, at the end of the day, remember, that you wanna win people over with love more than win an argument. So overall, that's the premise of what we see in scripture in terms of looking at the role of government, how that is being intruded on by the government now, and how we can lovingly enter into taking certain thoughts captive because at the end of the day, it's an ideal war out there in politics. And so sure, you have to be lovingly, um, when you address everything and watch tone, so on and so forth, but to neglect addressing it at all when you see there's evil there, just prayerfully consider something else as a different thought. Cool. All right, we got one amen. All right.
Yeah, I think just to add to that, not much, but as we look at the armor of God, just scripturally, um, we see a lot of defensive armor, uh, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, belt of truth, all those things um, are defensive armor, um, but we are given the sword of the spirit, which is God's living and active word that cuts through soul and spirit, and that is our one offensive weapon as Christians, and we are to wield that responsibly, like you would wield any weapon responsibly, um, to do that tactfully, um, but also strategically, um, but also offensively. And the gospel does offend. Um, truth will offend. Jesus tells us that. Um, but again, w- with grace and love and truth. So um, I'm going to have a couple questions here, um, more theological and kind of practical with C.L. Benny. Um, one of the questions was, why do you guys practice um, immersion baptism versus sprinkling with water? Uh, great question. Um, if we look at actually just the simple Greek word for baptize, which is baptizo, uh, it literally means to submerge in water. So we just see already that um, sprinkling with water or infant baptism, is, which is where the sprinkling came from, which we don't see any biblical examples of that throughout Scripture. Um, we always see what we call a believer's baptism, which is once someone has professed faith, they have confessed their sin and repented and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, that's when we see um, water baptism through immersion. Uh, we see that through the example of Jesus himself, which if we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, uh, we have the greatest example, Christ himself, who was baptized through immersion. Um, we also see that baptism is a symbol. We, it is an outward sign of his inward change. We'll say that constantly. Um, and we see that in Romans 6, 3 through 4. Uh, Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, We see that in this context, it's Paul's referring to the baptism of the Spirit, which is just saying that the Spirit has fallen on this individual. Again, it has led them to a godly conviction of their sin. They have confessed, repented, trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, But again, if water baptism is a symbol of spirit baptism, then we understand that the submerging is really a symbol of being buried with Christ when you go under the water and when you come out of the water, that is, again, a symbolizing um, of being raised to new life with Jesus and being joined with him. So, again, we see that um, immersion baptism by water um, is, again, just biblical, and it is most true to the actual symbol of the spirit baptism. So that's why we practice water baptism through immersion. Um, One other question, I'll go, and then Roy's going to do another one. Um, we had a question asking what happens if pastors have theological differences? Um, what's the council or synod of City Light and kind of the theological foundation of City Light if we would have, um, I guess, differences in theology? Um, again, with, when it comes to this question, um, this would be mainly on the secondary doctrinal issues. Um, when it comes to primary doctrinal issues, we are in complete agreement, all of us pastors and leaders um, here at CL Benny. Um, The primary doctrines is, again, referring to anything of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the God-man. We believe in the Trinitarian God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons in one in perfect unity and harmony who each have their own personality and each have their own role in the gospel. Uh, We believe in Jesus, the God-man, who uh, alone saves by grace through faith because of his life, death, and resurrection through the atonement of our sins, making us righteous and reconciling us back to himself. Um, So anything when it comes to those primary doctrines, we are, again, are in perfect agreement. We will not differ whatsoever. We see that clearly laid out in scripture. Um, But again, I think the question is addressing more maybe secondary or even tertiary doctrinal issues, um, specifically if we would look at like maybe the continuation of gifts, if you're looking at uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism, um, those kind of theological differences. Um, The way that we would work actually is the pastors are the synod, we believe in uh, pastor-directed, elder-protected. So we are growing and right now praying into having an elder board um, again. But it's pastor-directed, elder-protected. Um, and with that, the pastors being the synod or council would come together if we would disagree maybe on a secondary or tertiary doctrinal um, uh, teaching. We would come together. We would obviously pray and just search the scriptures. Um, and you can see, too, when it comes to any of the other maybe doctrines that we stand on, you can visit our site at citylightbennington.church. You can go to um, our 
statement of faith, and that's true for all the City Light churches. Really, all we agreed for when we planted a city like Bennington um, was mainly that we believe in co-leadership among pastors, the multiplicity of elders, and then a complementarian theology saying that men and women each have their own distinctive biblical roles. Love it, my man. Okay, so here is another cultural question. What is the church's view on the woke culture being taught? Okay, so when I got born again, it was 2007, and I came from California. <clears throat> Get emotional thinking about how God's grace saved me, so if you don't know me, I'm sorry. So in 2007, I ended up coming to Saving Faith, put my trust in Jesus. I didn't have a, um, a spiritual background. Went to church a couple times, and Jesus ended up giving me hope, and I followed him ever since. And the first thing that I got discipled in was a new identity. And so I had a, a guy who, who sat, the guy who led me to Christ then said, follow me as I follow Christ. So for the next three years, he set a foundation for me. We went straight to the word of God. So he brought up Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live in my in, by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the principle of that is that when we have trusted Christ, the number one identity that we have is being a Christian. It's being a son and a daughter of his. And number two was he brought me to Colossians 3 and talked about how in Christ there's no Jew, Scythian, Greek, uh, male or female, but Christ is in all. The principle there has to do with the identity of you placing your allegiance to Christ and Christ first over family. And it's not competing with family, but just saying overall when you're born again, you now have a new identity and you identify, you identify with Christ first and then your family identity, ethnic identity, fill in the blank, okay? And so he challenged me immediately and said, Junior, I know that you're, you're very proud and you, you love where you came from. I'm from the Bay Area. And my mindset was when I was coming to Nebraska, it was to put on, meaning represent Bay Area well and represent Tongans well. That's my ethnicity. So I'm Tongan by ethnicity. Um, I'm first generation born American. And my parents were immigrants from the islands of Tonga, South Pacific. And so he said, you're no longer, these verses show you that your, your number one allegiance is to Christ, his family, and his word over your ethnic identity. And it was, so speaking from, a, um, given, given just the perspective for me personally, and I think for the most part what's true of uh, minority groups, is God's created us naturally to see someone who's like us, especially when you're in a minority group and gravitate towards those people. And so I went to a, a school where there was a lot of white kids. Then when, when I would see brown kids, I hung out with the brown kids. Like <laughs> they were Arabs um, at the melting pot in the Bay Area, Asians. And that was true of me, not only when I was in elementary school, but middle school and high school. It's not sinful, I didn't find any sin in it, but for the most part, it just happened naturally. I saw someone and I gravitated towards them. And so my mindset was always as I was younger is to make sure I represent Tongans really well because they're the minority of the minority of the minorities in America and we're really strong family knit, really strong culture. And so I wanted to represent Tongans really well, strong ethnic identity. And those two verses he brought up really challenged me and it shaped the course of my life. To where when I got born again, I made sure that everything I did was filtered through would Christ honor it and value it. I knew that Christ was the one who created my ethnicity and creates different ethnicities. I don't use ra the term race personally because it's, it's used and or originated from Charles Darwin. And he talks about the races of the human race making a race to the end. Who's going to finish? Who are the uh, ones that the races that won't finish well? Who are inferior? Blacks are part of the race, he ends up saying, are inferior intellectually. So those are just, that's the reason personally why I don't use race and why biblically I end up seeing that there's the human race and you can make an argument that there's two races, the born again race and just your carnal race. Anyways, I'm digressing. And so he ended up challenging me, see everything through a biblical lens, honor 
your honor, your ethnicity, because God created it, but make sure it's all coming under a biblical lens. So with that being said, this one hits me really close because woke is a term to describe um, a lot of issues that happen with minority groups, ethnically primarily, um, ethnically, which is uh, whites, blacks, Mexicans, Asians, fill in the blank. And so with this, it, I've, I've had to continually go back to scripture and say, God, how do you see this? And how do I end up coming under and submitting to it? So with that being said, I want to give you background just to say I've wrestled with it. And by God's grace, this is where he's brought us in discernment from a church leadership staff. So woke is a, is a term that's used to describe being alert to systematic injustices of people groups. And so it has to do with oppressor and the oppressed. First one is oppression of blacks, critical race theory. Um, the oppression of LGBTQ, that's critical social justice theory. The oppression of women, which would also, all of it's underneath the umbrella, umbrella, umbrella sorry, of critical social justice theory. And so critical theory is what it's all attached to. The word critical is before each one. And it criticizes the current social societal structures because they promote, again, like we said, oppression from the oppressor and therefore you get the oppressed. And so critical theory solution to the oppressors and the oppressed is to demolish and get rid of established societal structures. I'll say it again, critical theories resolution to the oppressor and the oppressed is to demolish societal structures. And so the, an illustration of that is um, the way a culture and civilization is built is through traditional theory. Uh, you can see it in the Middle East through the source of the Quran. You see it in the Western civilization through the source of God's word, the Bible. Those are traditional theories. They're like a construction. Um, they're a construction crew. They come in, they establish values such as family, economics, government, and that is how society works through that resource. Critical theory is a demolition crew. They come in and they end up seeing what's wrong with everything, criticize, 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 and then they get rid of societal structures that end up producing oppressors and the oppressed. And so critical theory comes to demolish social structures. I think for the most part, a lot of this teaching is just to get all of us on the same page to then work through what's happening behind spiritually, just so you can track with me. And so I wanna talk about the lineage and the history of critical theory. So critical theory is critical theory, I should say this first, critical race theory and critical social justice theory are children of critical theory. And critical theory is a child of conflict theory, which was attached to Karl Marx, and that's his idea. And so I won't go into Marxism and how it has practically led in history to socialism and eventually communism and an oligarchy um, and one leader um, that ends up being a tyrant, but the oppressor and oppressed idea come from Marxism. It's helpful to just know roots of certain things so that we can end up seeing, okay, well, who was Karl Marx? What was he about? Karl Marx was an atheist and his theory actually represents it. He says in a criticism of the Hegelian philosophy of right, which is an 1844 document, he says, the requisite requirement of the happiness of the people is the abolition of religion. Karl Marx's own words, the first requisite of the happiness of the people is the abolition of religion, a belief in God, theism. So critical theories, not just a political issue, it's actually more of a ethical and moral and spiritual issue. Critical theories, I wanna make sure that we're on the same page here. Yes, you can see how it's being implemented in America right now, but it's even more of an attack on God. Critical theory, sure, is giving issues and it's attacking certain societal structures in America, but it's more of an attack on God. Let me show you what's happening in a spiritual sense behind critical theory. The spirit behind critical theory is that of the original critic, the enemy, the Satan, and his demons. The spirit behind critical theory is the original critic, and that's the enemy. Revelation 12 
verses 7 through 9. If you, all of this you can listen to later. Sorry, I'm just going to keep going. You don't have to pull out your Bibles, but if you want to, you can listen back on this. Revelation 12, 7 through 9 ends up saying uh, that Satan and his demons were the original critics. And they were the original critics of who? Of God. They criticized his leadership, his org chart, um, his decision making, and the structures that he had set up in heaven. They were rebellious. They didn't like his kingdom. They thought that it was unjust. And so the demons and the enemy, the original critic, ended up overthrowing. It was the first just social justice movement that happened in the unseen realm. And they tried to overthrow the king of kings, the creator himself. What else is chronicled there is that God ends up kicking them out of his presence, out of heaven. The enemy and his henchmen, the original critic and the small critics have come down to earth and they have now continued their battle against humanity, which is God's creation. And so what happened originally up there is just being carried out now throughout human history. And critical theory is just one of the ways that the enemy, the original critic, who gives us half-truths, which are eventually lies, ends up using to manipulate and undermine God's creation, his structure. If you're looking right now at America and you're wondering why is it so chaotic, who is the sower of seeds of chaos? It ain't God. He's the God of organization and order. It's the enemy behind it all. And so he does this just for example. Here's how he counterfeits stuff all the time. The fruit of the spirit is contrasted and counterfeited by the fruit of the flesh, which can be attractional to certain people. The Holy Spirit fills. The counterfeit of that from the original critic is demon possession. So stick with me. Sorry, this is the longest answer, <laughs> but it's also the most deep. Okay, so there's also true teachers and prophets, and there's false teachers and prophets. And those are promoted from the original critic. There's Christ himself, the hope giver, and who actually gives true hope that's everlasting. And it's counterfeited eventually by the spirit of the Antichrist, who gives false hope and eventually undermines and leads people away from Christ. That, my friends, is what the enemy does and has done throughout history. We tracking? I'm not expecting amens and go for it, preacher. I just want to make sure that everyone's still caught up with me. All right. And say, <laughs> I love you, John. And the critics, not just behind personal temptation. I think that's what we always think. But the scriptures testify, especially in Revelation, that the three evils in scripture have to do with the enemy, the enemy's use of religion, and the enemy's use of government. It has to do with a broad swath of things. And so the book of Exodus is actually a case study. For instance, the book of Daniel, check it out, the book of Exodus, phenomenal case study for demonic counterfeits. And so here's examples. The Pharaoh is the son of God, right? He's the ruler of that country. He's known as the son of God, a counterfeit, a counterfeit to the, the real son of God, who's Jesus. Priests that perform miracles. Remember, Moses goes in, and they are genuine miracles from the power of God's spirit. And those are genuine miracles from God's power. And then the counterfeit are fake miracles, which they were legitimate miracles, but they were empowered, they were empowered from, from the original critic. The priest comes in and does other miracles that are counterfeiting God's miracles through Moses. And today, the enemy is using critical theory as a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. So let me, let me bring you exactly what it looks like to how critical theory is a counterfeit to biblical truth. Okay, stick with me. We got about four things of how it's a counterfeit. So there's a counterfeit in the whole woke culture and the whole critical theory, which again, follow with me, has to do with oppressors and oppressed, critical, theory, um, critical race theory and critical social justice theory. All of that is a counterfeit of true repentance. So the Bible says to repent to God. The critical theory says to repent to one another. And so the Bible says to repent to God, and Jesus says to you, your work is finished. Critical theory says repent to people, and your work is never finished. If you've seen, and with, with I'll say, critical theorists, just to keep it from name-calling here, there's always something that has to be done after you've said, I have been an oppressor unconsciously, then you always feel obligated to continue to make up reparations, continue to make up for that. And you see people to continue to call for that in culture. And so there's no genuine repentance. There's no genuine forgiveness compared to the true forgiveness that comes from Christ. Another counterfeit of critical theory is discipline. So in the church discipline, the Bible says that church leaders should 
kick out for a certain amount of period a person so that they can eventually come back into the fold and be, be blessed by the family of God again just by being in fellowship. The heart of that is restoration. Critical theory doesn't offer that. It cancels you. It cancels you and shames you to repent. And the heart behind it is shame and guilt when the heart of church discipline actually has to do with restoration. Do you see that? Who's the sower of seeds with guilt, condemnation, and shame? It ain't God. That is the enemy. It's the original critic. There's a counterfeit of crucifixion. So the Bible says that Jesus was crucified for us. Critical theory will cancel you by crucifying your name, your business, your reputation. Anything that you've done in the past is negated. You can look to certain examples in society for that. Jesus offers forgiveness while there's no forgiveness from those who are, who are the oppressed. Um, there's Pharisees on both sides of this thing. There are Pharisees just in life, and there's also Pharisees of critical theory. So Pharisees would nitpick over Jesus' ministry, if y'all see that in the Gospels, over the minor things and teachings, the teachings and his actions. Well, there are Pharisees of cancel culture that end up go around, that go around and nitpick for microaggressions. And I agree that, that what you say, there's a motivation too, and it can be sinful. And biblically speaking, you have to watch what you say. There's actually, there's actually a license of restraint. There's restraint that's given more to Christians than to other people. Meaning when I became a Christian, I read in Corinthians and the Apostle Paul said, hey, what may be a stumbling block for another person, you may want to consider not doing. So there are good godly restraints in those things. But the issue with critical theory is that it teaches that the oppressed can't help themselves from thinking in an oppressed way. And so everything becomes prejudiced towards those who are being oppressed. Another thing is counterfeit of the kingdom of God. So critical theory says everyone with wealth and power, remind you, all of this is a part of the heritage of Karl Marx. You can hear it in conflict theory here, right? Classes going against one another. It says that with wealth and power needs to be redistributed, that it would be heaven on earth if we redistributed, because let's be honest, there are those who are really well sourced nowadays, and there are those who are undersourced nowadays. So critical theory ends up saying that, sees the discrepancy and says, we need to redistribute wealth. That, that is going to be the solution. We'll get, we'll get heaven on earth. Well, the same lie was being told at the Tower of Babel. Humanity ended up getting scattered at the Tower of Babel because we believed, humanity believed that we could get heaven on earth. Who? Without God. Without God. So the Bible says that sinful depravity is so vast that if you were, it affects, and in our lives we can testify, Depravity, sinful depravity, our human condition we're born with, it affects our thoughts, it affects our emotions, it affects our actions in everything. And so if you take resources and you give it from the oppressed to the, uh, sorry, the oppressors to the oppressed in critical theory terms, then for the most part, a critical theorist would say that's heaven on earth. But from a biblical standpoint, everyone's carrying original sin. You just gave it from one people who are selfish, prideful for the most part, handing it to another people who are selfish and prideful, and there won't be any heaven on earth. Actually, for biblically speaking, there wouldn't be justice in that. But biblically speaking, the heaven on earth that we all want, and let's be honest, critical theorists want it too. People in what culture want it too. We all want it. It's a different way of how we go about it. It has to do with Christ's coming and his ruling in the new heaven and new earth. That's when we're going to end up seeing everything made right again. And it's not to mean you don't care. It's just the reality. Like, look to the scriptures and say, even Jesus in the gospel say, there will always be the poor among you. Now, always care for the poor. We have people here who work down at Open Door Mission who care for the poor. But you also have, have to have a realistic, realistic expectation that the new heaven and the new earth ends up changing everything to where there will be no more sin and no more oppressor, oppressed, fill in the blank. There'll be no more discrepancies because there is one ruler who's calling the shots and we've all submitted to him and that's Christ. Amen? Okay. So track with me. I know, I know I'm wearing you guys out, but this is once a year that we just got to drive home some certain points. Counterfeits. Are you good? You want some water? Okay, good. There's a counterfeit to being born again. The Bible says that a person was blind and now you see. The Bible says that you are spiritually dead and now you spiritually are alive. Critical theory, again, again, it sounds so similar. Critical theory says I was asleep and now I'm awakened. I'm awakened to certain systemic 
discrepant, uh, certain outcomes and discrepancies in culture, and it's all linked to systematic injustice, right? And so being woke is the equivalent of a public baptism. You get, you let everyone know on social media and publicly that you've been changed and you now see what is right and you now see how you have been wronged. And it, all it is is just a mimicking of what some people end up saying is kind of like the baptism that we see in Waterton Christians. You say, I'm a representation of Christ. And so you can see that's just a small way of how you can be woke and born again. And there, a lot of critical theorists are trying to tie those two together. Uh, there's labeling critical theorists, as we all know, for the most part. Um, if you disagree with someone, it's easy nowadays to be called a religious bigot, um, a non-binary bigot um, for a lot of people here because most everyone's white, white privileged. Um, critical theory also make, takes the form, at the end of the day, of a mob mentality. And so the mobs in the Gospels and in Scripture, specifically in the Gospels, they end up coming to Christ and they label him demon-possessed in a couple of different instances in Scripture. And they, they call him Beelzebub, meaning he is the worker of Satan. He's, Christ, he's Satan himself. And the mobs not only did that to Christ, but at the end of the day, who were the people who ended up calling for Christ to be crucified? Mobs. And so it's just easy when you get around people who aren't tethered to Christ necessarily to have a group think tank and ultimately it ends up being so easy, friends, whether you're woke, whether you're, you're not, to end up becoming a part of a mob mentality and end up criticizing people and throwing stones. When at the end of the day, here's the heart of the issue, care for people. Scripture says to care for your brothers and sisters in Christ, especially the family of Christ. If you see, now here's, here's a huge issue, is that ever since there have been certain things that's happened in the last two years, caring for people and empathizing with people and carrying burdens for people need to be number one in a reaction. It just needs to be number one. Now, it doesn't mean that you end up agreeing with people, but we need, we need to unify over actually caring for people and not just winning arguments. Okay, critical theory we have to be cautious about because it becomes biblical to a lot of people, meaning you look at critical theory, critical race theory especially, and say, there are so many tenets that are so similar, and it seems well-meaning that you take it as infallible. And you can't, the, on, on the worst end of the spectrum is you can't criticize or question critical theory or its outworkings of it. That's where the labeling comes in, and that's where, for the most part, a lot of people get caught in a blender. The problem with critical theory is, at the end of the day, it tries to restore the world without sourcing God. It's sourced towards Karl Marx and his view. When you have an eight, for instance, when you have, if you're going for counseling and you want counseling for your marriage and you are both believers and you go to an atheist for counseling, is that wise? We would say no. And in a similar way, when you have critical theory, although there, is, there are certain terminologies, certain things that you care about for other people, especially other ethnic groups, but if it's sourced, sourced from an atheistic standpoint, you have to reconsider and pray into that especially when it's coming from Karl Marx. Okay, so at the end of the day, what's at stake? We look at the world. If we were to continue and believe in critical theory and its outworkings, we're going to look at the world through a non-biblical lens, through oppressor and oppressed, and lose sight of how God sees humanity as all guilty. Everyone is guilty. And guess what? There's only one hero of the story. You know who that is? Jesus, that would be correct. There's only one good guy. Everyone else are bad guys. Okay, so we, we, we don't have to throw one another under the bus and say there are certain good guys, certain bad guys, which critical theory can easily get you into, but say at the end of the day, we see that there's one perfect God-man who came to restore everything. What he says goes. What he says goes. And the result at the end of the day, this is observation, is when you look at critical theorists and you look at, let's just say, those who maybe don't buy in, you end up seeing f less fruit of the spirit, meaning love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control from critical theory and those who buy into it lock, stock, and barrel. That's just an observation. It's not God's truth, but that's just what, what's hap what happens when you buy in and get that mindset of always looking for. I live, I, I live in a world where I have to communicate with people all the time who I love most, who don't see this the way I do. 
And at the end of the day, you're going to have to lovingly ask God on how to relate to one another and unify over love. Okay, so where do we go from here? Matthew 22, last minute. Matthew 22, 36 through 38. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The second command, greatest command, is love your neighbor. It's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself with grace and with truth. For those who agree with what we just said on the spiritual view behind critical theory, it's not going to go away. So continue to study uh, the resources that we have looked into are certain pastors like Vodi Bakum and Mark Driscoll and a plethora of other people who end up holding this posture towards critical theory. Um, for those who agree with what we said, we've got to learn to lovingly teach those who we disagree with and also just leave the issue as is because at the end of the day, we're, we have people who are made in the image of God, right? And there's this great quote from an old saint back in the day. Um, be kind for everyone's in a great spiritual battle. Everyone's in a great spiritual battle. If you disagree, you are more than welcome to disagree. I don't see you, if you're born again, I don't see you as not a spiritual sibling of mine. If you disagree, come up to us, talk to us. We hold highly God, his creation, uh, equality. Um, but at the end of the day with critical theory and how they see oppressor oppressed and equity, and the sourcing of why behind everything seems to be a disparity, a, the disparity in culture, we just see that as being utterly different. And so come talk to us. It doesn't make you a non-Christian. We love you. And with that, I think I tap out, bro. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, you crushed it. Um, that's a big answer uh, for a big question. So that's great. Thanks for pointing us to Jesus and his truth. Um, we have a couple more questions here. Again, some more theological and also some practical um, questions. Um, one was asked that uh, why in Mark 11, verses 12 through 14, does Jesus curse the fig tree? So if we turn there in scripture, uh, go ahead and turn to Mark 11. Um, this is actually a, a pretty classic example. Uh, when you read the gospel of Mark, Mark the writer uses uh, something that is called a Mark and sandwich. Um, this is really just basically... Mark will tell a story, and then he'll show something that Jesus does, and then there's ended, book ended with another ending of that story. And so what happens is there's this sandwich between these story is the actions of Jesus, and the story is meant to show what Jesus was doing in that recording. So the eyewitness account of Mark 11, we see Jesus curses this fig tree in verse 12. Um, he's going in with his disciples um, from Bethany, and they're going into Jerusalem to the temple. Um, and on the way that morning, um, they go across a fig tree with no fruit on it. Jesus curses it, saying, and may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Um, later that day, Jesus goes into the temple. Uh, he cleanses it from money changers and all this uh, practice of um, they basically turned God's house into a marketplace. And Jesus gets upset. He braids a whip, um, drives out the money changers, flips tables, and tells them that, do you not know that it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So why does Jesus do this? Well, if we look later, that next morning, um, the, t the story continues with the fig tree, um, and Jesus and disciples pass by that fig tree again, and they can see that it is completely dead. Um, so there's this Mark and Sandwich alliteration, or excuse me, illustration that happens by Jesus cursing the fig tree is actually showing that Jesus is cursing the nation of Israel. So little context, the, uh, a fruitful fig tree back in this day um, seen outside of a nation would have been seen as a symbol of blessing and prosperity. Um, and vice versa then, or on the flip side of things, if you would see no uh, fig, fruitful fig tree, it would actually show that there is a symbol of judgment and rejection from God. Um, so Jesus does this to, again, show that he is bringing judgment and a curse upon Israel, God's people, um, and that he has, actually has the power to do it by killing this fig tree. Um, we see that the lesson in all of this is that Jesus wants his people 
He wants God's house to be fruitful and full of genuine worship. And he sees that at this time, um, that's not what was happening. And God's people have turned away. They are not fruitful. We can see this in the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, through 23, where we're listed out. Paul says the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, Israel at this time was demonstrating none of these fruits. And we can see that in James 2.26, um, the main takeaway, James says, faith apart from works is dead. Basically saying that if there's no fruit, um, there's no actual symbol that you have truly been resurrected with Jesus. And so it's just, again, to show us this whole Mark and Sandwich illustration of the fig tree, Jesus cleansing the temple, and seeing the fig tree again is that we as Christians are called to be fruitful. And the only way, John 15, Jesus says, you have to be attached to the vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can bear no fruit if you're not attached to me with an ongoing interactive relationship. So that's Mark 11, 12 through 14 and the teaching of the fig tree. Um, one more practical question, which I really appreciate this question. Whoever had the honesty to ask this, really appreciate this. Um, it says, why is it wrong for an unmarried couple to sleep in the same bed, even if they resist temptation? So that was a question. Appreciate whoever asked that question had the honesty. Um, I guess I would answer that by simply saying uh, humbly that uh, the Bible actually doesn't tell us to resist temptation. Nowhere in scripture do you find that phrase, resisting temptation. Uh, the Bible tells us on numerous accounts to flee from temptation. So the, the command um, when it comes to temptation, not to resist it, but to flee from it. Um, 1 Corinthians 16, 18, uh, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2, 22 says, flee the evil desires of youth. Um, so we are told... Um, not only to flee from temptation, uh, but also to flee to something else, something greater. Um, and this is to flee to Jesus. We see in 2 Timothy 2.22 that the verse ends, um, flee from the evil desires of youth, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Romans 13.14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Uh, one of the best and mo probably most literal uh, biblical examples of someone fleeing temptation. If we look in Genesis 39, we see a young Joseph, uh, Jacob's son, if you remember his story with uh, the rogue, um, was targeted by the master's wife, uh, Potiphar's wife. Um, she was tempting him day after day um, to lay down with him and tempting him in sexual immoralities. Um, but not only did he refuse her, but he actually flees from her. And if you remember that, he literally is left, she's left holding onto his cloak. That's how quickly he fled from her physically. Um, and that's a, a literal example, but it also should show the spiritual um, examples of how we are to flee from temptation. Um, and that Joseph was strong enough in his convictions um, and devoted to the Lord that uh, he wouldn't listen to her. It says that he wouldn't lie with her in bed and he wouldn't even be with her. Um, so again, to answer the question, um, why is it um, wrong for an unmarried couple to sleep in the same bed even if they resist? Again, we're not called to resist, we're called to flee and to make no provision for the flesh. Um, lying in bed, again, would create a, a large provision for temptation. So again, flee. Um, say that in grace and humility, um, for in, we see that uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 also just says to abstain from every form or uh, depending on your translation says appearance of evil. Um, so the Proverbs speak to this as well, um, essentially summed up in do what's right in a way that looks right. So if you're, if you're having a, um, an unmarried couple sleep together in the same uh, apartment, room, bed, whatever it is, again, that, that might not be biblically wrong, but it certainly doesn't look biblically right. So we, we want to be good stewards of what God's given us, and we want to be heralders and witnesses to the world. My man, good job. Um, just to add to it, 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul's writing to a really perverted um, culture. I won't go into it, but he ends up saying this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So, yes, you could, my friend, born-again person, sleep in that, that room, that bed. Uh, you, it's lawful for you, too. Is it helpful? No. Not helpful. Not helpful at all. Not for the witness, and especially not for your purity. Um, God cares so much about, he didn't just save your mind or your soul or your spirit. He saved your body. And he wants that thing sanctified. He wants other people to look in and, and be like, yeah, they, they just live differently. And so he ends up saying here, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God's going to raise your body um, by the power of his son. And so 
just care, just be wise, be discerning. You could do it. It's not a good look, not helpful. And at the end of the day, you do have a king that you're going to have to answer to. Judges, at the very end of the book of Judges in the Old Covenant Scripture says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, you don't got to do, you, you've got a king. If you're born again, you've got a king. Do what's right in his eyes. The spirit of truth is in you by God's spirit. So if he's saying no, and if this is giving wisdom and counsel on saying, hey, probably look out for that, we would just reiterate, yeah, it's probably wise. You have a king, you'll answer to him, do what's right in his eyes. Friends, those are the questions that we have time for. That rolls up our 2022 Q&A. Yeah, okay, I was waiting. I was like, well, we get a, you don't have to give an applause, but just want to bring some closure. So um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and pray us out. You can visit with us after. Uh, we'll cue the house music after. We'll stack our chairs as usual. Come talk with us, whatever you want to do uh, next week. We're going to get back into the gospel of John. If you've been a part of this church, or if you have not been a part of this church, and you've come the last two times, we did a Christmas Adam, which was thematic. And then we ended up doing, in December, an Advent, which is thematic and topical. And so if you haven't been here for, um, gosh, anything other than the month of December, we do actually preach the Bible through a book. And we're getting back into the Gospel of John. That's our normal rhythms. The Q&A is something simple that we could do to speak and proactively uh, give a biblical worldview to y'all. And so we'll pick up in the Gospel of John. Yes, we're going back there because we never finished it when we picked up the Holy Spirit sermon series. And so that's where we're going to pick up next week. Join us for that, and we'll have our 10 a.m. service as usual. Jesus, I thank you so much for every person in here, people who see what we said on both sides of the aisle. God, I'm asking that you would soften their hearts and that they would do business with you. They would come to us, have any inquisitive and uh, curious questions that they may want answered more, knowing that we couldn't give details in every single answer. God, I thank you that you care for each and every person here, God. We each fight a great battle. I'm asking that you would restore and that you would bring truth, and that truth would be something that in this church that we would hold highly and that we would apply your truth into darkness, into culture, into society, and hold you, Jesus, as the person to run to, run to for true hope, not in a political party, though they may side more with biblical principles, but to put it in you. So God, would you continue to guide us, lead us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.